We've been talking this semester about what it would mean to have a good and a noble heart, which is what Jesus Christ said you need if you're going to produce a crop in his kingdom. And it's actually an extension of this whole year because we looked at our purpose in life, which is to love God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And the test of that, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus said, if you just get those two right, the rest will sort of fall into place. And ironically, the church is not known, the body of Christ doesn't seem to be known for having gotten those first two right. So we should never forget those. That's the purpose. That's the core. That's what Jesus said. All of what we call the Old Testament hangs on these two things. To love God with everything you've got. And to love your neighbor. And then we looked at what would it look like if a person did these things. If you could kind of video their life over, over a stream of time. What would that look like? And we said, that, well, they would be a person who would put Christ before self who would put Christ before others, who would put Christ before possessions. And now I'd like to look at another point today. Jesus summed all that up by describing it as a person with a good and a noble heart in the parable of the sower, which has been our theme for the second semester. When you get the purpose right, a lot of other things happen. In fact, one very important thing happens. God will give you a vision that is much greater than yourself. And I don't know when he'll give it to you. It may be early on, and it may be in a very small form that will grow. Like he said, the seed will be planted, and then it'll, the smallest seed will become the largest tree that all the birds can rest in. Maybe your vision, your faith will be like that, and a vision will grow from a very small thing to a large thing. But I do know that God has a specific vision that flows out of the purpose of loving himself. If we love him and we love every person he's created, he will put on your heart something extraordinary to do with your life. And then you need to be guided by that vision. You need to be disciplined in that vision. You need to purpose yourself to focus on that vision. I told you that I was going to share with you some film clips throughout this semester to honor the memory of Mother Teresa. Someone uh, from outside my own faith tradition as a Presbyterian, and she's obviously Roman Catholic, and someone who I have grown to admire in her life uh, Maybe in, you know, just the top two or three people I've seen in history that I look at and I say, this person walked like Jesus Christ walked. Now, if you, if Mother Teresa could have come to Westmont and we could have had a panel discussion, I did invite her, by the way, to speak at Westmont. And I got a nice little note from her, signed by her. You can see it's in my office. It's thanking me. It says, Dear Father Tarman, which I kind of liked. Uh, uh, you know, thank you for your kind invitation to Westmont. And then she preached a four-sentence sermon to me that uh, is a, I've been pondering ever since. If she could have come here and we had debated theology, she and I would be on different sides of many, many issues. Probably the issues that have divided Roman Catholics from Protestants and Protestants from Roman Catholics. But if she had come here, I know that's not what would have happened because we would have focused on Jesus Christ and we would have listened to her vision. Underneath her vision to give her life to Christ was to serve the poor, the poorest of the poor, not just the poor. 
She wanted the poor that no one else would care for. And she gave the last 40 years of her life. She did not receive that second vision until she was in her 40s. She was an English teacher until then in a girls' school in India. But once the Lord gave her that vision, she focused every ounce of her energy on that vision, but fed by and nourished by the purpose of her life, which was to love God. She said it this way. She said, my vocation, that is what I do, is love Jesus. Now, the work he's given me to do is care for, the, care for himself, that is Jesus, in the distressing disguise of the poor. Kind of maybe her most famous statement. So she said, as I'm cleansing a leper, or as I'm, as I'm helping someone die with dignity, I see Jesus in them. Because Jesus said, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And so she literally let her life be guided by that. And by the end of her life, they had, they had cared for over 80 or 90,000 dying people in the streets, not only of Calcutta and India, but all over the world. And somebody asked her once, well, how did you... Do that. I mean, how did you pick up 80,000 people from the streets and care for them and help some of them to die with dignity and help to cure others of them? They, she, they said, how could you do that? And she said, well, I picked up the first one. And then I picked up the second one. And then I picked up the third one. And then God gave me some sisters and they began to help me pick up the people. And now we've picked up 80,000. She was guided by a vision. Now, I want to show you a film clip, and let me give you the context. It's about a three-minute film clip from a documentary on her life. And you know that one of the things they were guided by, and her sisters still are, uh, is a vow of poverty. They have made a vow, a voluntary vow. It's not forced on them. They've decided this. They've decided they will own nothing. And because they're working with the poorest of the poor, they don't feel like they do a very good job if they themselves were not poor. Well, the funny thing is, when you decide to be poor like them, the world admires you so much that they give you lots of things. And so this scene is taken in San Francisco. And apparently the bishop of San Francisco had given a Victorian house to the Sisters of Charity, that's the name of Mother Teresa's order, in order for them to care for the poor in San Francisco. And so really a wonderful gesture. They don't own a house or anything. They don't, so the bishop says, we're going to give you this house so that you can care for the poor. And at the beginning of this scene, you'll see her kind of young, a young sister speaking about her thoughts about Mother Teresa. And this sister is now the head of the order. She was given the, uh, the role of the superior of the order when Mother Teresa died. And then you'll see how Mother Teresa, just see what she thinks. She thinks, how, how does her vision guide her in this particular situation. They've just been given a house and she arrives to see it. So let's show the clip. Providence is always giving us in ways most unexpected. We just don't know where it's going to come from next. But it's it's such a delight to know that we don't really have to worry. No matter what we need and want for our people, it will be there. And even for ourselves, the way God provides for us is, is just um, fantastic. That all be done in time for our Mother Teresa to arrive? Everything will be cleaned up. The bishop invited Mother to come and open a house. 
there and he says, I was gently informed that the mattresses could go, the carpet could go, the pews could go. And then uh, when Sister Nimrol is down in the the down beneath and they're looking at the hot water heaters and the guy's so proud he's been working on this hot water heater and she said oh that yeah we won't need that we don't need hot water because the poor don't have hot water and they're trying to serve the poorest of the poor the vision within the purpose the purpose is to love God their vision was to serve the poor and their vision was the thing that would determine their actions Their vision was so great that they wanted to serve every poor person in the world who no one else would serve. That's a big vision. In every country. And it started with one person with one specific call on her life. And then some others joined her in the cause. A career is not necessarily a vision. And one thing that you'll be pushed by in our culture, is to think that a career is in and of itself a vision. Now, a career can be a vision. But if the point of a career is simply to earn a living, then it's no vision. Everybody has to earn a living. Hopefully you find a good way to earn a living, and an honest way to earn a living, and a way that will earn a living and help other people. But that's not a vision. That's not, I'm not saying that's wrong or bad. In fact, to not do that, we're told, is a sin. If a person doesn't take care of his or her own family, the scriptures say uh, they should be treated like a tax collector. A career is a good thing. I've loved my career. I've enjoyed it. I'm glad to be able to pay my bills. I'm glad to have a job. But that's not the vision itself. And God will give you a vision. It may be in and through your career, but it may be beyond your career as well. Let me give you an example just that happened this week of somebody I met for whom it's working out within his career. When I was at the prayer breakfast this last week, we were in Washington, D.C., and I was in a, 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 a like a retreat center, and these two couples came in. I didn't know them. looked like one was about my age and maybe one, uh, maybe 35 or so. And we get to talking to this, these two couples. And it's obvious the two men really know each other well. You can tell they're great friends. They're yucking it up, you know. You can tell they're just excited to be together. And I said, well, how long have you guys known each other? They said, about two months. And I was thinking, I mean, these look like blood brother. I mean, they were so into each other's lives. I said, you've got to be kidding. You guys seem to really know each other well. And they said, well, we had sort of a strange experience. I said, well, tell me about it. So the one guy said, well, I'm an architect in Washington, D.C. And... uh, and, and some friends of ours who, who love Christ and have a heart for, some, for all, the, all the countries of the world had a project going in North India. It's a project, actually, I've told you about in another sermon. To help Tibetan refugees learn about Christ and also to help them uh, just in all of their lives with education, with health, with housing. And he said, this friend came to me and said, could you... I mean, this is a you know, very sophisticated architect in Washington, D.C. And this guy came up to him and said, um, would you mind flying to North India in a couple weeks and just block off 10 days? And we bought some land and we want to build 200 homes for these Tibetan refugees. 
but we need it to be architecturally sensitive because one of the big issues for the Tibetan people is that they've been in exile now so long that you're into the third generation that's been born in exile and they're losing their culture. And so we want the homes to help them keep their culture and we want them to be really good homes but they have to be very inexpensive and they have to be able to be built by them and they have to fit in ecologically. And Well, this was this guy's exact expertise. He's a very creative architect. He loved to do things with ecological soundness. He loved to be culturally sensitive. And so he said, oh, this, I'd love to do this. Well, he can afford to do it, so he gets his plane ticket. The next week, it's like four days, five days before he's supposed to leave. And they say, well, who's going with you? And he says, well, what do you mean? They said, well, Jesus always sent people in two, so we just assumed you would think like Jesus. And so we figured you'd want somebody with you. And he said, well, gosh, it it never dawned on me. They said, well, why don't you go find somebody to go with you? And he says, it's four days from now. I can't just go around to my colleagues and say, you know, in four days, how about we pop up to North India? So they said, okay, we'll find somebody. So they prayed about it. And I don't know how, but the Lord put on their heart a CEO of a very large corporation in Portland, Oregon. They called him up and said, could you go to North India in four days? For 10 days? And he says, well, why? And they tell him just to be with this guy, because we think it's good, you know, Jesus did it this way, and we're kind of <laughs> trying to do it that way. And, and he, so he says, this is crazy, but I'll do it if you can get me the visa. And so they, they streamline the visa process somehow, and they get him a visa. And four days later, these two men who didn't even know one another from two opposite coasts of our country are together on an airplane for who knows how many, 18, 20 hours to get to North India. Then they're in a little Jeep driving up these rutted mountain roads. And then it's just like out of one of the movies you've seen about the Tibetan situation. There they are, surrounded by people in saffron robes and people, you know, just totally very different in all of their gestures and mannerisms. And they spend 10 days there. And they're bonding. By the time they got off the plane, they were so bonded in Christ, it was unbelievable. And the architect said his biggest fear was that he'd get blank page syndrome. I hadn't ever heard of that, but where you've got to design this thing and and you're just looking at a blank page and you have 10 days and all the elders, you know, they can't believe this person's flown all the way from the United States to help out with this thing. And so he's interviewing the elders and they're saying, well, the, the, the homes have to be round because our culture is built around the whole concept of a circle. And so he's thinking, oh my word, it's round. I mean, that wasn't, you know, that makes architecture a little different. But they've got to get as many people in as possible, but they all need separate entrances because in their culture, it shows a lack of dignity if you don't have a separate entrance to your house. So he's trying to figure out, how can I use common walls and get separate entrances? And then he said, you know, it just kind of came to him, you know, and he, he's sketching all night and drawing these things up and he brings them back to the elders and, and uh, they're thrilled. They just can't believe it. They just love the design. So these guys get back on the plane, you know, they're giddy. They've taken motorcycle rides up to temples and done all kinds, got caught and got went away up this road so far and the sun set and they're on these little motor scooters going over boulders and things. They're just hooting and ho- they're having the time of their life. So they come back. Now, fast forward one month to last week. I'm sitting talking with this guy. He says, something incredible happened to me today, the architect. I said, what, what was it? He said, well, at the prayer breakfast, you know, you're just seated randomly. They tell you where to sit. You don't know who you're going to sit next to. 
He said, I sat down next to this man who was obviously uh, an international person, just the skin color and his accent, but I didn't know where he was from. And he told me he was from Bangladesh. Now, if you've got India here coming down like this, Bangladesh is right over here. North India, where they had been, was way over here. They were up in the north, uh, northwest side. Now, Bangladesh, way over on the northeast side. And uh, he gets to talking to the guy, and finally he asks his name. And the guy tells him his name, and he realizes that this was the president of Bangladesh uh, as of eight years ago, who had been thrown into prison, ousted in a coup, spent eight years in prison, had come to begin to believe in the teachings of Jesus while he was in prison, even though he himself was a Muslim, and had been elected to parliament from prison. So they had to let him out because now he was in parliament. And guess what he's in charge of in Parliament? Housing for the poor. And he says, well, what do you do? I'm an architect. Oh, really? Where do you do your architecture? Well, mainly in Washington, D.C., but I've got a small project in North India. Really? Tell me about the one in North India. And we kind of skipped Washington. So he, started, he tells the former president of Bangladesh this story. And he's telling him how he designed it. And, he's, and the president says, sketch it out here, you know, on the napkin here. So he's going to sketch it out. He says, this is tremendous. This is, now, he hasn't said anything about his role as minister of housing. And, and, and the, the, the meeting's over, and the guy gets up to leave, and the president grabs his arm and pulls him back down. He says, no, 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 I need to hear more. I need to hear more. So he tells him more that what they're thinking on this thing. And he says, can you come up to my room tonight? Could you have them fax your plans to you? I'd like to see them. So he says, sure. So he gets his, his company to fax him the plans. They go up to this guy's room. He's got his staff there. And they're working till 2 in the morning. And he's totally thrilled. And he says, I'd like to build 10,000 of these in Bangladesh with a few small alterations to fit our culture. Could we have permission to do that? And the guy says, well, I did it for Jesus Christ. So of course you can. This was just an architect two months earlier who was building homes and apartment buildings in Arlington, Virginia. But he loved Jesus Christ and he'd grown in a vision for the poor and he'd acted on it. And then he took the next step and that led to the next step and that led to the next step. And who knows where it will wind up. Now he's driven by a vision. He was guided by a purpose. Now he's driven by a vision. If he stays faithful to that vision... My guess is hundreds of thousands of families will have homes that didn't. What's the vision for your life? Is it just to make enough money to get through? Just to hold on to your faith like this? And so that by the end of your life you can say, I kept the faith, Lord, here it is. You know, he told a parable about that. And the person that clung on to their faith, clung on to the, the gift that they'd been given, had that taken away in the parable and given to the person who had invested that faith and had it grown fivefold and the other person tenfold. What kind of a vision could God put on your life? You know, a lot of people say that your generation is the generation of zip vision, that all you're interested in is yourselves. And I've told you before, I don't believe that. I don't believe it for a second. Some of you are going to do things like that. 
Now, a vision like this man, this architect is now doing. Now, that's a vision that came within his career. It fit his gifting perfectly. It fit his discipline perfectly. It fit his desires perfectly. There are some people who are called out of their normal circumstances to do a vision for God, to do a vision for the, for the kingdom of God. One of those happened in the Bible. One of many stories. There was a man who was a Jew, and he had the misfortune of being born on foreign soil. He wasn't born in Israel because a generation earlier, Israel had been totally demolished by an enemy power. And actually, the power would, would uh, be in the same area that Iraq is today. And they were carried off to what is now modern-day Iraq. And his grandfather and his father would have been carried there in chains, and he was born there. And he rose in uh, his abilities. He must have been a good administrator because he wound up being an administrator for the king of, of that empire. And he saw some of his fellow Jews who had just returned from a trip to Jerusalem, which he had never seen in Israel, which he had only heard about. And, and, and he asked them, how was it going in Jerusalem? And this is what they said. Well, things aren't good. The wall of Jerusalem is still torn down. And the gates are burned. Now, I think a normal response to that would be, boy, that's really too bad. You know, it must be rough over there on our friends that are still there. Maybe we ought to pray for them, you know, get a little prayer group together. Maybe get a little newsletter, kind of pray for the walls. We could call it prayer for the walls, ministry, you know. You know what he did? He'd never been there. He'd never seen it. He had no vision for it. And then this is what he says, when I heard this, that the wall was still torn down and that the gates were burned. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, I refused to eat for several days, for I spent the time in prayer to the God of heaven. He was totally struck with a vision. He didn't expect it that day when he got up. He was totally gripped, who knows why. Through the Holy Spirit, he knew he had to do something. And then he waited for four months and did nothing but pray and think and pray and think. And one day in April, four months later, as I was serving the king his wine, he asked me, why are you so sad? You aren't sick, are you? You look like a man with deep troubles. For until then, I'd always been cheerful when I was with the king. I was badly frightened. You weren't supposed to show any kind of negative thing around a king. But I replied, Sir, why shouldn't I be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have burned, been burned down. The king said, Well, what shall be done? And with a quick prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please your majesty, and if you look upon me with your royal favor, send me to rebuild the city of my fathers. Now there's a vision. And the king could have just called the swordsman out to, for his complete audacity and had him killed right there. And the king replied with the queen sitting beside him, Well, how long will you be gone? What a gracious way of saying yes. So then I added to my request. 
And I said, if it pleases the king, give me letters to the governors west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel through their countries on my way home. Also a letter to Asap, the manager of the king's force, instructing him to give me timber for the beams, for the gates of the fortress near the temple, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. He'd been thinking about this. You can't just go build a wall. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, like a six-foot cedar fence here in your backyard so you don't see your neighbors. We're talking about a, a huge wall surrounding an entire city. It takes beams. It takes rock. And he thought, and he moved on that vision. And when he got there, he was oppressed from the outside. The people who were non-Jews at the time said, we're going to fight you for this thing. And so he had to deal with that. So he had the, he had the people building the walls. He had, he had half of them hammering on the walls and he had the other half standing over here with swords on guarding them. And then they'd trade places. And then he had opposition from within. He found that the noble people of Israel were reaming out the poor. And they were so, they were, they were putting loans on them just to eat. And the loans they couldn't repay. And so they were having to sell their children into slavery in order to pay for the loans. And when he heard this, he got all the leaders together. And he put the guys who were doing this right in the center. And he put them on trial just like that. He didn't mess around. He was guided by a vision. He would let nothing stop him. Not opposition from the outside, not corruption from the inside. And in a very short time, they'd rebuilt the wall. And they had this tremendous feast, this tremendous festival. But that wasn't enough for him. He didn't want to just rebuild the wall. He wanted to rebuild the people. And so he brought in Ezra, the, the, the teacher of the Word, and he had him read the Word to all the people of Israel. And they... They, they heard it and they, they were refreshed by it and they repented of not following God's word and they had a tremendous time of repentance and recommitment to the God of their fathers. How did that all happen? An entire nation turned around because one guy who'd never even been born there had it put on his heart by a, a chance comment. Well, it's not going so well over there. The walls are broken down and, and they're burned and the gates are down turned his life around, and he moved on it. Some of you will have visions that big. Some of you will have smaller visions in terms of quantity, but just as large in the kingdom of God. Some of you will be led to care for the children in your neighborhoods. Some of you will be tutors or mentors. Some of you will use your wealth so that you can buy the land for the people in North India to build the 200 houses on some of you will, will have a vision that will be primarily focused on raising your own children to be godly. But you'll have to do that by demonstrating something larger so that they have something to move into, a vision you've been following. What am I trying to say? Simply that your lives count. That the purpose of them is to love God and love your neighbor with every ounce of energy you have. But that within that, if you will be open... God will give you a vision. And when he does, no matter how small it is or how large it is, it might start small and grow large. It might, it might start small and, and grow medium. It might start big and you'll have to grow into it. I don't know. That's up to the Holy Spirit. But he has something for you to do. Find it and then 
discipline your life, structure your life, focus your life on accomplishing it because you're the one called to do it, not someone else. Let's pray. Father, your son, when he was on earth, had a vision within his purpose. And that vision he articulated to us through the words of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, our Lord said, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Father, even your Son had a specific vision within his greater calling to love you. And he focused his life on it, and he structured his life around it. We praise you that you have given us the ability to love you, to return your lavish love for us. And Lord, if we did have a thousand tongues to sing your praise, it would still be but a small gift back. Help us to sing your praise with our lips, but help us to sing your praise with our deeds and our lives. And open our ears to any vision that you would put on any one of our lives so that we might praise you with our works, with our hearts, and with our minds. Let's stand together and sing, O for a Thousand Tongues.